Hey everybody, John Malanka with United Patients Group. Be informed and be well. This segment is brought to you by Aspen Green. Aspen Green is just a handful of USDA certified organic hemp and CBD brands. And all of this hemp is grown from the perfect topography and climate found in Colorado. Check out why purity matters at aspengreen.com and follow them on social channels at Aspen Green CBD. Use promo code UPGCBD for 20% off. Welcome back, everybody. This is John Malanka with United Patients Group. Be informed and be well. Today, well, first off, I just want to thank everyone who's been following us, uh, not only since 2011 when we started United Patients Group, but uh, in the last year uh, by doing these podcasts. Uh, many of you have contacted us over the years to help direction, what to do, where to go, what question to ask, uh, what to stay away from, what to avoid. And, um, you know, it's been uh, uh, something that Corinne and I have taken pride in uh, launching United Patients and Patients Group and being that group, not only for you, the patient, but the family members, but also the doctors. We've invited your doctors in on calls. And so we are the informational site. Um, the topics that we're talking today, uh, we'll get into shortly, but, um, and we're talking about this, and I'll, and I'll share why. We're talking about this because you, our listeners, have come to us and said, John, we have questions about this, questions about that. And so that's why we are touching up on these questions today. Um, if you have questions, please submit them. Please hit the subscribe button. We love followers. If you have any questions or comments, you can email them directly to uh, me at John at United Patients Group or put them down in the comment uh, box below. Uh, today's guest, this is the new one for us. And so I'm really excited. Um, you have heard me talk about the Brad before, uh, pretty much as a thir third party, uh, but excited to get, get him on the show. Uh, Brad, Bur first off, how are you doing, Brad? Good to have you on. So great to be here, John. Thanks so Good much for having you on. me on. So thanks for joining. Um, so Brad Burge, he earned his BA in communications and psychology uh, from Stanford University and his MA in communications from University of California, San Diego in 2009. Back in Stanford, it was 2005. My apology there, Brad. He directed communications and public relations for the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, also known as MAPS, from 2009 to 2020, where he engaged daily with journalists and media producers around the world to enhance public knowledge and psychedelic research. Uh, produced the largest psychedelic conference in history, which is the Psychedelic Science 2017 Conference, while also developing and evolving MAPS international brand and outreach strategy. In 2020, Brad founded Integration Communication to provide the fast-growing psychedelic industry with effective, ethically-based PR and communication strategies that keep uh, them connected with the communities that they strive to serve. Brad is passionate about finding better ways for humans to work uh, the pharmaceutical and digital communication technologies of the 21st century. When he's not plugged in, is what I love, Brad. You find him in the mountains carrying a backpack somewhere down a long trail. So, boy, what a great visual that is. So, uh, Brad, welcome. Welcome to the show. Uh, thanks so much, John. And, uh, it's just such an this, honor to be on here. Yeah, honor to have you on here. This is, this is, a, this is a new topic for us. Um, uh, many of our listeners have heard me share uh, about psychedelics um, when it comes to migraines, and you were the reason for that. Uh, back in 2000, I want to say 12, maybe 13, uh, Corinne and I were coming back from a cannabis conference in, in Denver, Colorado, and we were at the TSA terminal, and we saw you there, and we said, hey, 
we didn't see you at the conference. You said, no, I'm at, a, at another conference called MAPS. And, uh, and, I, and I said, what's that? And he said, it's about psychedelics. And I said, they have a conference on psychedelics. And he said, yeah. And I said, what are you guys talking about? He said, actually, the studies that we did on the topic we did on this was, uh, was uh, um, mushrooms, which we'll go into, and migraines. And I said, come on. He said, no, go read it. And so we went back and re I researched it. And I said, I'll be darned. So over the years, you've been this imaginary uh, guy, this friend that we've shared not only on this show, on, on I've talked about it with uh, patients that have called us, uh, but other shows I've been on. So great to have you on here, too. Um, psychedelics. It's still, you know, people still have the visual of 1960 LSD tripping down on Haight-Ashbury since you and I are from both the, the, the uh, in the Bay Area listening to the Grateful Dead and, and, uh, and all that. And so um, can you talk about this? Because, you know, before we, we, we got on, I said, what do we call this, Brad? Do we call it a drug? What do we call it? And you said, great topic. We'll talk about it. So yeah. please have at it. Yeah, psychedelics. Yeah, it's a mouthful. Um, from the perspective of most people, they're pretty terrifying sounding. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, but we're at the point now where we've seen so much happen with the mainstreaming of cannabis that more and more people, millions of people that we wouldn't normally have expected are starting to ask, well, what is, what is actually going on here? And psychedelics, just like cannabis, have a long history of stigma, um, been subject to the war on drugs for 50 years now. Um, now, before they were illegal, both cannabis and psychedelics were used non-recreationally. That is to say, spiritually or for therapeutic purposes. Cannabis was, of course, in the United States pharmacopoeia until it was removed. Psychedelics were never in the U.S. pharmacopoeia, but they have a thousand plus year history of use in a whole wide variety of ceremonial and religious contexts. So we're getting to the point now where we have more investment, uh, more philanthropic contributions, uh, more widespread interest in using psychedelics for uh, beneficial purposes than we have really ever. There's more science happening now into yeah. the use of psychedelics and therapy than there ever has been ever. Um, even prior to the 1960s, in the 1940s and 1950s, certain psychedelics, LSD, mescaline, psilocybin mushrooms were being explored for therapeutic uses, um, but then that stopped. Now we have more trials happening than even then. So really we're seeing um, the biggest heyday of, of psychedelic research um, than we've ever seen ever. You know, and, and there's like, as you're mentioning, you know, cannabis was in the pharmacopoeia since 1937 or something like that, and mm -hmm. then banned. Um, it was a, it was a, uh, a sketchy topic to talk about now, everybody and their mother even talking about on Today's show, Good Morning America, cannabis, the discussion. Psychedelics was like that until recently. People are now starting to talk about it. You're starting to hear it in, in you know, does it help with PTSD? Does it help with depression, anxiety, um, uh, depression? Um, and so can you talk about that? One, not only the benefits, but also research, which is happening. And you made mention that it wasn't in the pharmacopoeia here in the U.S., uh, but it has been used for spiritual events for years. And you always hear about that. And you're hearing more about that now. Um, when it comes to psychedelics here in the U.S., um, how many states have legalized it? Is, I believe Colorado is, is, are they the only one that has, is allowing uh, psychedelics right now? If you want to, I'll say, I'll throw, do you throw everything into that category yeah. of psychedelics? 
you know, LSD, uh, MDNA, mushroom. And what's another uh, uh, term for mushrooms? The um, uh, psilocybin. psilocybin. And yeah. so is, are they all thrown into that category? Yeah, psychedelics are a huge general broad category of, uh-huh. of, of substances, compounds, molecules, drugs, whatever it is we want to call them, depending on their use, um, that have very little chemically in common, a lot of them. Uh, cannabis is, is one plant with a lot of different compounds or chemicals inside of it. Um, psychedelics are a whole wide range. So generally when we're talking about psychedelics, we're talking about this broad class of chemicals, all of whom are grouped together by their general effect on human consciousness. Now, whether that's through the serotonin system or the dopamine system or other endogenous systems, um, they're all grouped together in this category because they have a tendency to bring subconscious material to light. Uh, that they, they bring up material that's stored in our body, that's stored in our memories, and they make them more accessible, whereas they wouldn't necessarily have been otherwise. The word psychedelic means mind manifesting, psyche and delos, so to bring the mind forward. So one major difference that we're seeing between psychedelics and cannabis and how they're used is cannabis mm-hmm. is really an everyday treatment for all of the different conditions that it could be used for. This is a treatment that people are looking at for symptom control. for for reducing symptoms of whatever disease might be underlying that. Psychedelics are by and large looked at in a very different context, not as a daily treatment, but rather as part of psychotherapy. So psychedelics rather being the catalyst to make psychotherapy more effective, whereas cannabis would be the treatment in and of itself. So we're looking at very different treatment models. Yeah. And you mentioned, you mentioned every day and the same thing when, and I'll use depression. Depression is, 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 pretty relevant here. And I think there's about 17 million cases of depression in the United States uh, uh, in last year. I'll use last year, 2019 in the, in the study. Um, but it affects us, and especially here with COVID. I mean, I know a lot of people are, gonna, are, are going through this right now, that the human touch, losing their jobs, not being able to get out and do their everyday normal thing. But when it comes to psychedelics as your thing and not an everyday, a lot of people are used to taking the pill, this pharmaceutical pill, which is an everyday uh, uh, thing. There could be unpleasant side effects. Um, it's a palliative, it's not a cure. And so, as you mentioned with, with the psychedelics, and I'll, um, let's go with mushrooms. I'd love to have you back on because I know the list just goes on and on and on and on. It sure does. Um, of, of what, on, on different topics. And so, um, with this, you don't have to. Well, I always talk about cannabis. And again, this is all new to me. And the topic topic, topic comes up quite a bit. You know, people are afraid of THC and they always say, oh, I want the uh, medical part of the cannabis plant, which is CBD in a lot of people's mind. And I, and I don't want the recreational part to a THC. And I say, THC is needed in, in many cases, and it'll even help you like epileptic uh, epilepsy. You know, you can have great CBD does work, but add microdosing of THC and that success rate will definitely will go up 70% coming from 17% with just CBD. And um, a lot of, I've had doctors on the show and we've talked about this and they said, well, actually I microdose daily with mushrooms. And I said, I wasn't expecting that out of you, you know? And so <laughs> um, can you talk about um, that uh, one, that you don't have to take it daily, but also the uh, few doctors I'm working with in this industry that are doing microdosing um, as well. And w- what are the benefits of doing one, 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 uh, I guess, dose or one, one, uh, try, is it, is it try? What's, what's, what's the terminology for this? 
Yeah, I guess you'd use it once versus using it on a more regular basis. Okay. Uh, psychedelic therapy, it, it, that involves higher doses of, of the drug. Um, okay. so, so that often involves altered states of consciousness, different feelings coming up. And really, from my perspective and the perspective of the folks who've been in the field for the longest, it really requires psychotherapy to be maximally safe and effective. One could go home and just take a full dose of, say, psilocybin mushrooms and um, hope that the insights that you have are going to be helpful for your depression or PTSD or anxiety. But that's really a lot less likely to be the case without some kind of guidance or support, at least somebody there taking notes for you who's trained in, 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 in holding that kind of therapeutic yeah. space. Um, so the psychedelic therapy model that's, that's most advanced right now, that's advanced in clinical trials and that we're likely to see enter medical practice the soonest is that model where you go into the clinic and you receive the, the, the drug or the medicine right there. You have your whole experience with a psychotherapist and then you go home um, or you stay the night. Uh, then there's follow-up psychotherapy that doesn't involve the drug or there's preparation psychotherapy. So really it's mostly psychotherapy, mm -hmm. but it's augmented by these powerful drug experiences. Now, microdosing is something that's very new. Uh, we didn't hear about microdosing in the 1960s or 1970s. It was all about these big, mind-blowing, mind-expanding yeah. experiences. Microdosing is, has just come up. It's been a naturalistic thing that's happened, is people who are experimenting with psychedelics outside of research or outside of therapy are starting to say, hey, can I turn it down? Can I go about my day? Can I use a small enough of this that it's more like a conventional pharmaceutical? So that provides you know, some, some benefits uh, and, and the research is still out on this. There's, there's more research happening into, into microdosing now slowly, but surely. Um, but, you know, one of the advantages of that is you're using the lower dose. You're not having as extreme an alteration of consciousness. It may or may not require psychotherapy support around it. Uh, you could just go about your day with a very, very small amount of say LSD or psilocybin such that you wouldn't even notice much of a change. This is what we're accustomed to with SSRIs. This is what we're accustomed to with conventional pharmaceuticals. Uh, what we get from that is we don't need to go into psychotherapy. What we lose from that is that we lose that opportunity for the deep work that can happen. And it becomes more of a symptom control kind of thing uh, where you can, you may be able to reduce anxiety for a couple of days or a week following say a microdose of LSD or a microdose of psilocybin, but then you have to do it again. Uh, and we don't have research. We don't know what happens when people microdose for a long period of time, every few days or once a week. We, we, we just don't know what the risks are. We don't know what the benefits are yet. So um, it, it's very promising in the sense that it, it might be cheaper. Psychotherapy is very expensive. Uh, and again, it fits this conventional pharmaceutical model. I think we can um, have all sorts of conversations about whether yeah. that pharmaceutical yeah. model is actually valuable or not. Uh, but, but, but really getting at the symptoms versus... Um, getting at the deeper cause, I think is the main. What, what, what are researchers currently trying to learn about this uh, and prove? Because you said, you know, there is no research on microdosing. Right, there's uh, most of the research. So we're in, we're seeing phase three clinical trials. That's the uh, most advanced stage of clinical trials uh, mm -hmm. uh, before FDA approval. We're seeing those for MDMA assisted psychotherapy. That's with the nonprofit MAPS. And okay. then we're seeing psilocybin assisted therapy. That's with the nonprofit, the USONA Institute, and then also a for-profit Compass Pathways is also working on psilocybin assisted therapy for depression and treatment resistant depression. And those are using the, 
the full doses of of both of those. And that's all here in the U.S. or is that overseas? It's both. Most of the studies are here in the U.S. Compass Pathways is is, is located in the U.K. Uh, yeah. I know Maps has trials all over the world as well. How, how, so so cannabis, right? Unfortunately, right now, Schedule One uh, narcotic. It, where does this fall into? All all of these psychedelics are also Schedule One Schedule drugs ones. as well, with the exception of ketamine. So ketamine is a what's called a dissociative anesthetic hallucinogen. Um, it's that kind of psychedelic. Uh, and it's very different from LSD. It's very uh -huh. different from, from psilocybin, very different from MDMA. Um, it's, it's, as many of your listeners probably know, it's already available as an anesthetic. Uh, and uh, it was approved in 2000 and uh, what was it? 2019 by Johnson & Johnson uh, as a nasal spray for uh, the treatment of depression. Hmm. Uh, so ketamine is a psychedelic. It is also a recreational psychedelic. It is used recreationally, uh, but, uh, it's, it's wasn't it a, uh, a, a horse tranquilizer? Horse tranquilizer. It's still used as a veterinary really? and, and human anesthetic. Um, it's used in dentistry and in surgery. Yeah. Um, so, this, for, so you yeah. said na nasal spray. Um, it's a nasal spray. Mm -hmm. Uh, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Um, so it's I, a take home. I, yeah. Sorry. So it's a take home treatment. Okay. Yeah, and it's the first psychedelic that's been approved for the treatment of a mental health condition. Um, again, very different from MDMA and LSD, but yeah. it is technically the first psychedelic to be approved. And so, with Johnson and Johnson involved, is it, is this where is Big Pharma involved in all this? Are they, as well as our government, are they looking to say, hey, we want we want our fingers in this one as well, like they're doing with Epidiolex and Sativex with GW Pharmaceutical? Just in the last couple of years, that is absolutely happening. Okay. Um, for the last 30 plus years, um, the developers of these chemicals, those who are um, working with the regulatory agencies and putting out the press releases and talking to the general public and trying to get support for this research have been very, very small nonprofits. And they've had to kind of scratch everything together um, tooth and nail, uh, trying to collect donations from people who support the research. Now, with these phase three clinical trials advancing so well with people like Michael Pollan writing um, in glowing terms about psychedelics, appearing on mainstream news all the time, mm -hmm. uh, and more and more companies emerging. Ketamine now approved, ketamine clinics popping up all over the world um, or all over the, the country for now, yeah. uh, available to provide psychotherapy. With all of that happen, happening, finally, uh, it's gotten to a point where investors are seeing, oh, this is not just a pie in the sky idea anymore, but psychedelics are really likely going to be the next major breakthrough for modern psychiatry. It's been 30, 40 years since the advent of, or 20, 30 years since the advent of SSRIs, antidepressants, that mm -hmm. we've had a genuine a genuinely new class of chemicals introduced to mainstream psychiatry. And, and that's what psychedelics are gonna be. Investors are starting to see that, big pharma is starting to develop that. One of the complications with psychedelics is that most of the psychedelics, all of the psychedelics that we know about and have seen for many years and have reason to believe are helpful for the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder or depression or traumatic brain injury or suicidality or all these things. These are old drugs, these are old chemicals that were originally synthesized 40, 50, 60, 80 years ago, or they're naturally occurring like psilocybin mushrooms or ibogaine. Um, and so without that profit incentive 
um, that is the ability to patent these compounds, big pharma has had to take another route, which is to find mm. patentable new delivery systems. So ketamine can't be patented. That's an old one, such as a nasal spray. Um, with cannabis, that's been happening for a very long time. You can't patent the cannabis plant. You can't pa patent THC, but you can patent a synthesis pathway. You can patent a non-smoking delivery system. You can patent a, a patch or an inhaler or a suppository or a pill or whatever it is that you want. And then- Which we're seeing. Which we're seeing. Um, and that is likely to happen with psychedelics is all of these uh, for-profit companies are going to come in and be like, hey, what is the niche? What else can I provide? What does the market need? And that includes not just psychedelic therapies themselves, so a certain approaches to using psychedelics and therapy, but all of the myriad ancillary services that are going to surround that. So yeah. preparation support, integration support, um, counseling, uh, retreat centers, medical device manufacturers, um, distributions, um, medical associations. There's, there's all of these services and, and, and associations that are, are going to have to be formed alongside of this, yeah. Yeah. this industry. You were talking, I want, I want to, before we go into the effects on the brain, you, um, I, I want to know about guiding. You're talking, you mentioned guidance here for a second and as well. And so um, I have friends here in the San Francisco Bay area that have met with psychotherapists and had got guided um, uh, MDM, M MDNA. Um, MDMA. Mm -hmm. I want to say trip. Trips is not a right. <laughs> yeah. It's entering the colloquial. Maybe we can say medical trips now. Medical trips. Gotcha. And so with, with guidance and, you know, so many people, I mean, depression affects us all. You know, we've all had it in some, some form of memories, emotion, pain, love, grief, you know, losing my wife. Uh, but uh, does it bring the body back to balance and what does it do to the brain? Is it like the endocannabinoid system where it brings the body back to homeostasis? Um, what is it, what is it doing to the brain? Uh, great question. So, you know, like we were talking about, psychedelics are a wide, wide class mm -hmm. of drugs, and they're doing all sorts of different things, pharmacologically speaking. Um, if we're talking about MDMA, it's very different than psilocybin. Uh, but in general, there's been some neuroimaging research looking mm -hmm. at different psychedelics, uh, psilocybin, LSD, MDMA, and there are some things in common. Uh, one of those things is neural plasticity, okay. is the flexibility of the brain. Um, what it looks like is um, all the compounds that have been looked at that have some, all the psychedelics that have been looked at with some kind of effect on the serotonin system, especially, um, have the, may have the ability to increase our neural plasticity, to allow our nerve cells uh, more capacity for growth, mm -hmm. for for regenerating, for um, healing from mental illness, from traumatic brain injury. Um, there's another aspect that's called the default mode network. Um, so I think there's, there's, there's a common misconception around psychedelics is that when someone ingests a psychedelic, it produces um, these, these hallucinations, it adds something to our experience. And, and that's where um, these altered states of consciousness come from. What Neuroimaging research has shown is actually that psychedelics turn down activity in large parts of the brain. And these, uh, these parts of the brain that are turned down in activity are called the default mode network. It's, it's, it's the part of our brain that is just kind of normally 
awake and alert and activating. I wake up, hey, I'm Brad. I'm going to go have my coffee. I'm going to make some breakfast. I'm going to sit down at my computer and see what my email has. You know, this is just kind of my day. You wake up, you're John. You know, this is what you do. This is where you live. And that's the default mode network. Psychedelics disrupt that. So it makes us less likely to fall into normal patterns of awareness and more likely to break out of those patterns and to do things differently or to see things differently. So if psychedelics are in fact doing this, um, and the neuroimaging suggests that they are, uh, is that they could allow us to break out of these stuck states that we might be in, whether it's depression, um, whether it's inflammation, um, whether it's chronic neuropathy, such as in headaches, um, but, but, but we can change the patterns and, and take conscious control over what direction we want those changes to go, especially with psychotherapeutic support. Are there, you know, like back to MDNA, uh, ecstasy, you know, uh, high doses, low doses, they say it puts uh, uh, holes in the brain. Um, are you seeing, is that, is that, is that, is that you, you shake, yeah, please. Yeah, shake. yeah, yeah. No, no, that's, um, thanks for bringing that up, John. That's, um, you know, one of the most damaging pieces of, uh, retracted science and misinformation that's, that's I think, ever happened in the field of medicine. It was quite amazing. I learned about it in psychology <laughs> classes as an example of how the scientific publication process works and doesn't work. So the holes in the brain um, around MDMA, that originated from a study um, by a scientist by the name of George Riccardi, and that study was published, um, I forget in which journal, uh, um, it's R-I-C-A-U-R-T-E, the Riccardi controversy, um, published in a big journal, and it showed it, they had given MDMA to rats, and they had shown images of these brains um, that had these big atrophied areas in them. And um, it was published, and uh, Phil Donahue covered it. Uh, on the Donahue show, and millions of people learned about ecstasy causing holes in the brain. Uh, just a few months later, George Riccardi and his team published a retraction to that mm -hmm. article. Um, the retraction stated that their team had mistakenly administered the wrong drug to these rats in this highly publicized, very influential scientific study. They had inadvertently administered methamphetamine. Oh, wow. Rather than MDMA, which is methylene dioxy methamphetamine. Oh. Turns out that methylene dioxy makes a big difference. Lots of meth causes yeah. holes in the brain. And teeth. <laughs> and teeth. Yeah. Not a good thing. MDMA yeah. is not meth. So they published this retraction, uh, uh -huh. but the retraction wasn't covered. Of course. Because that's not as interesting. You, so you, that just kind of, it, that, that stuck in the mainstream imagination. Yeah. Now, after thousands um, of people having been treated in clinical trials, receiving pure MDMA in yeah. moderate doses, uh, that's never been seen. There's been no evidence of neurological damage or cognitive damage at all. Um, so what, what about the spinal fluid? You always hear that, you know, it, it was a big thing in the, in the 90s and 2000 you always heard you know the brain of, of course and then spinal fluid take you know is, is that another farce i'm not exactly sure which farce you might the scientific farce that might yeah. be but th there was something about lsd and spinal fluid i don't i, um, I think it was actually was it yeah 
I don't. Back to Las Vegas days. I'll, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. Um, haven't heard that. Yeah. Haven't heard that in all my years reading research protocols and institutional okay. review board documents that, 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 that hasn't come up as one of the side effects. That'll, that'll be an, an, another show since, I mean, there's a whole list list that I'd like to talk to you about here. Um, <laughs> risks. Are there any risks? You know, because people always, I, I always talk about cannabis and, you know, and I say it's always, you hear the plus, 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 and no one talks about the side effects, you know, um, depression, anxiety. And I, and I feel that some people, everyone's different. Everyone's body's competition is different. Um, you know, I'm highly sensitive to coffee as you're sipping on, on a cup of coffee. So I can't even have coffee, you know, <laughs> Absolutely. Um, um, my cannabis intake, it affects me. You know, if I take too little CBD, it keeps me up all night. If I take a, enough, a higher doses, it puts me to sleep, which I, which I'm using at four. And so um, the same, I'm assuming the same thing with, with any psychedelic, um, let's go back to mushroom. So out, out of all of those that we're talking about, MDNA, Ibogaine, Ibogaine is from South Africa, correct? Yeah. Ibogaine, uh, Ibogaine. from, from, uh, West Africa, West Africa. And it, it's a root. Yeah. Iboga is the root. Uh -huh. Um, it's, it's, it's the plant. It's kind mm -hmm. of a shrub or a bush. Uh, and then Ibogaine is the chemical that's extracted from the, iboga root and administered as part of therapy. And, and I've, I've spoken to doctors uh, uh, just in the last couple of years about um, they've reached out and said, Hey, I know of you, you've talked about, you talked to a patient and I'm, and I don't want to get away from, uh, um, from the mushrooms, but with this root, is it true that um, uh, it helps people on one dose get off of uh I guess, uh, uh, addictions, heroin, opioids, stuff like that. It has, mm -hmm. it has, there's a lot of case studies of that. Um, Ibogaine is legal for use in a lot of places outside of the U S so Mexico and right. New Zealand are two of yeah. those, um, illegal, but unregulated. Okay. Uh, so people have to be very careful, which Ibogaine clinic they go to make sure that it's properly vetted and there's proper medical supervision, et cetera. Um, but Ibogaine, uh, has helped people overcome severe opioid addiction with just a single dose or just a couple of doses. Um, it's um, in its own class, um, yeah. uh, both uh, pharmacologically very different from LSD or psilocybin or MDMA. Um, and then also as far as the experience, it's a, um, it's a nightmare of a trip is what I've heard. Haven't done it myself, fortunately, haven't had yeah. the, the need to um, in my life, um, but it can be a 24 or 36 hour, um, very hallucinatory experience. But people come out of these experiences often no longer craving opioids after being addicted to heroin or um, uh, prescription opioids for, yeah. for years. Um, again, you know, like you're saying, these, these don't work for everybody. It is not a cure-all. Um, and with psychedelic therapy, it is really never just the, the drug itself. It's always the way in which it's done. It's always the preparation, the support of psychotherapy, and then the integration, which is how people shift their lives. Um, do they go into more healthy practices? Do they change their relationships? Do they change where they live? Do they shift their goals? afterwards. Um, so Ibogaine can be this kind of like instantaneous relief for a lot of people, but if they don't then make a lot of changes, yeah, yeah. they almost always relapse. So th yeah. there's, oh, there, they do, there, huh? 
there, there has to be that continued work. Um, it's, it's never going to be a cure-all for, for any of these treatments, really. And Ibogaine just can look so dramatic. Yeah. Um, you know, some, sometimes, like you mentioned, it, you know, it's not for everybody. And, you know, a lot of patients and friends that I've spoken to over the years, you know, it, when they feel depression, they feel it's a, it's a feeling of weakness. Like, why, why is this affecting me? And, and they're afraid to share this. And so it's years of built up sadness and hurt and memories, as I was talking about, and love and grief and war, um, loss of job, loss of life's, uh, uh, you know, loss of, you know, what they, what they mean in this world. And so um, I think it's great that, you know, you come on, you're coming on the show to talk about this because people call us and say, help, have you ever heard of this? Have you ever done this? Um, and so that, that's why I wanted, wanted to do this because a lot of people self-medicate, not only with other, other drugs, alcohol, food, electronics, um, you know, the list goes on. And so it's not just, I'm just sitting here, you know, overdosing on opioids. It's, it's a, it's a mixture of everything too. What are the long-term effects on, on the brain? Do we know that yet? I know you said there's no, we don't know the microdosing yet with, with mushrooms. Um, are there long-term or short term, short-term side effects at all? Uh, well, the only source that we have for really long-term um, mm -hmm. data uh, on, on use would be demographic data. Okay. And a lot of that demographic data of people using psychedelics outside of clinical trials is going to be skewed because it's impossible um, or very nearly impossible to separate groups who are, for example, just using MDMA and not using alcohol or so, so there, so there are drug to drug interactions with these two. And so there you are drug to drug interactions and there's, um, and, and there's challenges in the statistics too. Uh -huh. um, so, so for example, when we see emergency room admission statistics and says X number of people were admitted to the emergency room um, due to taking ecstasy or MDMA, um, it, it, it won't also tell you that um, actually the reason they were in the emergency room was the alcohol they drunk. Oh. Um, it's just if they also reported having taken ecstasy, it's an ecstasy admission. Okay. Uh, so um, there, there's that. There's also the fact that often people who use one of these drugs will use multiple drugs, so we can't sort out which risks are from which. But as far as the long-term studies that have been done, um, two things. Um, one, there's significantly less uh, neurotoxicity or neurocognitive risks than has been touted in the mainstream media for the last 50 years. That's again, not to say that there aren't risks, there are exclusion factors mm -hmm. um, in, in the research trials. Um, and there will be exclusion factors for people who want to receive this treatment, um, different kinds of mental conditions, neurological conditions, cardiovascular conditions. There's all sorts of things that can exclude somebody from being a uh, a contender for psychedelic therapy. But in general, the long-term studies are showing that there is just not this long-term risk. You know, the second piece of that is that unlike when you're taking a drug every day, the side effects are just going to be way lower when yeah. you're taking, when you're really just going through the treatment two or three times. A conventional model of MDMA therapy or psilocybin therapy, you only receive the drug on two or three different occasions. Um, and the rest is psychotherapy. So any side effects, um, they're only happening while you're under the influence of the drug. Yeah. yeah. Since it's, since it's not legal and still a schedule one, um, 
are these are these underground psychotherapists that are saying yes wink wink we 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 do these uh treatments or i mean it's i i know then so they legalized it in i want to say colorado right is that the only state in our nation that that is well um yes and no um the uh legalization i just want to um dis distinguish from decriminalization Okay. Um, we have a long way to go before any of these psychedelics are actually legal for adult use anywhere in the U.S. Um, decriminalization in Oregon, in Colorado, in, um, in the Bay Area, in the San Francisco Bay Area, um, that's about making um, psychedelics, especially plant-based psychedelics um, or fungus-based psychedelics, the lowest priority for law enforcement. So it's following a similar path that we saw for cannabis is first, it was a lower priority for law enforcement. Then it was a zero priority for law enforcement. And then we started to have medical use and available for some people for some reasons. And then we have it available for adults further down the road. Um, now, I just want to make a note on, on um, legal use and legalization around psychedelics is, although there's all this major excitement around psychedelics as being the next cannabis. I, yeah. I, I can't, um, you know, just having been in the field and having watched what's happened with cannabis and seeing what's happening with psychedelics, um, it's not gonna be the same thing um, for a very long time, um, very long if, time. If, if ever. Um, first of all, the market for the, the, the patient base uh, for cannabis is, and has always been way bigger than for psychedelics. We have I don't know what it is, 50% or two thirds of the country have tried cannabis. I, maybe I think it's have, a two third, two -third uh, uh, mark. Yeah, have tried it at some yeah. point in their lives. Psychedelics, maybe, maybe 20%, maybe. Uh, and are admitting so, it because it's still, you know, a taboo for a lot of conversations. Also that, also mm -hmm. as these things get l less taboo, we're going to see yeah. more people admitting it. It might be more than that. In either case, it's certainly going to be less than what is out there for cannabis. Yeah. A and, um, you know, this being, you know, psychedelics are inherently more mind all, I guess you could argue this, but, but significantly mind altering and um, their use in especially large doses re requires preparation and support um, and some kind of guidance. Um, so um, that means that we're moving primarily towards a world where we have psychedelics available in clinics through your doctor, not as take-home drugs. These aren't going to be over the counter for a very long time. Mm -hmm. um, they're also um, not going to be available retail for a very long time. Um, just because of their different risk levels and the different ways that they're used. So different ways you use in the different types. And we've touched up on just, you know, uh, ketamine, uh, MDMA, um, uh, I'm mispronouncing it. I, I, Ibogaine, Ibogaine, what is it? How, how do you pronounce it? Ibogaine. Ibogaine, excuse me. Um, uh, and then, and then mushrooms and then ayahuasca. And so Ibogaine, mushrooms, um, uh, ayahuasca, those are the natural ones. The other ones are man-made, correct? Um, by and large. Um, huh. Yeah, there's also peyote. Peyote. Yeah, uh, and, and San Pedro. Those are um, not being looked at in clinical trials right now, but are um, gaining more popularity, especially um, as religious or ceremonial tools. They're um, both legal for use. That is yeah. San Pedro and um, uh, uh, peyote are both legal by the Native American church. 
what, what was, there was a book I read in high school. Um, gosh, it, it, it was uh, uh, something Carlos, maybe. Is, is Carlos there... Castaneda. It's got to be. Yes. And there was, Me a, too. <laughs> there, there was a, there was, a, what was it? He did a, he has a whole series, but there was a, a, a book. I think he was following an Indian guide and he ate some peyote. And next thing you know, he was chasing the dog around. Who <laughs> saw? I mean, did you read that that story? It was so funny. My my aunt gave me that book, and I said, "I did, and I, I did, just, I, I did. I remember that. I remember when um, I was in I was in college. I was at Stanford. I was I yeah. was learning about the history of these drugs. Yeah. Uh, and I'm I'm glad I had Carlos Castaneda and Alan Watts to teach me rather than stumbling upon them um, at some kind of a rave or something. I think yeah. my experience was was um, very different as a result. <laughs> Um, you go into Stanford. So did they talk about it? Because a lot of doctors go to medical school and they don't talk about cannabis. And so in your, in your classes and courses, is this something that a course that you did take on this, or is this something that, uh, that you well, I, uh, had I, an interest in? I, yeah, I, I, personal, I was both, both, um, yeah. you know, Stanford based in Palo Alto, um, was, you know, where arguably yep. it was discovered, right? that the counterculture originated. LSD was discovered in, in, in Germany or in Switzerland okay. um, in the 1940s, but it was through the um, Veterans Administration experiments in the 1960s in Palo Alto, right next door to Stanford, that LSD entered the counterculture um, through Ken Kesey and others. Um, so I was going to school in this place and um, taking history classes and uh, learning about the history of the counterculture. I was interested in psychology and communications and how these drugs changed um, over, over time. So I had the opportunity to um, have an LSD experience in my junior year um, at the same time that I was taking a class on 1960s history and got to write a paper about it. So it was kind of an academic exploration for me. Um, it wasn't like a, it wasn't even a social or a party thing, but yeah. it's just, you know, how can I understand what's, yeah. what's going on here? And that's why I'm so passionate about education around psychedelics. Cause I think if you come to these with an understanding that they need to be used carefully um, with preparation and integration and support rather than coming to them with this idea that, you're going to get out of your head or you're going to be able to avoid your issues or simply just have fun um, without any sort of care or preparation. I think you're likely to get into a lot of trouble. Thanks for that warning. I, I, I want back to the mushroom because you hear a lot of, you know, I've heard about it growing up here in the Bay area, you know, people going up and kicking over cow patties, which are the cow turds to our non-farming families here um, and just picking mushrooms. Can you, can you share the warning that it's not all mushrooms are psychedelic mushrooms and, uh, you know, not, just don't start picking mushrooms and, and, uh, and, and putting them in your mouth. And can you talk about how to consume them? Because you can eat them, which they have an awful taste <laughs> to some. Uh, you can put them in teas. Uh, can, you, can you share one about the warning, but also two on how to consume? Well, I'll just uh, I'll just support your warning there, John. Okay. Absolutely, yeah. If, okay. Yeah. If you if you don't know for sure, you can eat it. Don't, don't eat it. it. Don't, don't eat, eat it. it. Don't eat it. Okay. Don't eat it. Um, yeah, and then your other question was about <laughs> uh, yeah on how, how to consume it. Um, you know, it, it, back to don't eat it, but also eating it. 
Uh, people put them in teas. Uh, do they, can you smoke it? Uh, you know, I've never heard of somebody smoking mushrooms. Yeah. I don't think you can. That's certainly not how it's traditionally done. Um, yeah, um, there's all sorts of ways. There's all sorts of ways to do it. I'm hesitant to provide exact advice about gotcha. how to do it. I've yeah. tried both good ways and really, really bad ways. Um, I think main thing is talk to somebody who's done it before and who that you trust and um, don't just take what you find on the internet. There's more and more um, really decent psychedelic education out there online, lots of webinars and online events and things where you can learn more about what is the preparation like and what's the integration like. Um, also just be careful about the source. Um, you know, one of the benefit of all these clinical trials and the decriminalization is it opens up an opportunity for us to know dosages and purities. Um, Thank you. Thank and you. we don't have that now. And I was going to ask you, what, what dose more is not better? Is that the same thing like in cannabis? I always tell people more is not better in a lot of things. No, it's exactly the same as with cannabis. Um, you know, we were talking about microdosing versus yeah. psychedelic therapy. Depends what the condition is. And we're still learning um, what that's for. And of course, there's people talking a lot about not just for therapeutic uses, but microdosing for creativity or professional growth. Um, cognitive enhancement or, or even relationship growth. I heard a lot of couples going through this and bringing them back together. And I even heard a lot of cancer patients that are just so depressed because of this diagnosis that they're just pushing their family away. And there's like, you know, we don't want you to leave, but we, we, we don't want you to shut yourself off either. And so are there any um, medical benefits? You're talking about the at the beginning of the show when I went into, um, uh, we were talking about brain and I think inflammation. And, you know, can cannabis has been proven to help patients um, with brain issues, dementia, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's. And are you seeing that um, any, any medical benefits besides helping with the depression and other 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 things like this? But any any reversals of, uh, um, I guess, brain issue, but I, I guess depression falls in the same thing there. Right? So yeah. I, yeah. It's so fascinating. We're uh, uh, the neuroscientific technology and imaging is getting so good now that it's often hard to tell the difference between what is a physical brain disease and what's a mental illness. Yeah. What is the difference between our brains and our minds? And the border there is getting thinner and thinner as far as science is, is concerned. So yeah, I think we can look at um, healing depression, healing PTSD, yeah. um, healing anxiety as regrowing neural pathways or changing neural pathways. But, and this is one of the projects that I'm working on that I'm really excited about actually is Ibogaine and its potential as a treatment for traumatic brain injury. Hmm. Um, so tra traumatic brain injury, um, which is very common in especially military veterans, well, yeah. um, uh, um, lots of other folks too, um, first responders, yeah. um, a lot, construction workers, traumatic brain injury can happen a lot for a lot of different reasons. It's often associated with PTSD um, post-traumatic stress disorder and the actual physical wounding to the brain often go hand in hand. And the, and the TBI element um, that um, is often hidden. Um, and the treatment focuses on the PTSD. Oh, this person's depressed. This person can't sleep. This person's suicidal. This person's angry. Let's, let's, let's treat those. And that's where the antidepressants get thrown at people. Um, but Which with don't always work. Which don't always work. For a third of people, they don't work at yeah. all. Yeah. Um, and when they work, they're more or less effective, depending on who you are. With Ibogaine, there is evidence that Ibogaine specifically can help release a compound in the brain. Uh, 
um, called GDNF, um, glia-derived neurotrophic factor. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a compound that helps nerve cells actually physically regrow, remake those physical connections. You can see this GDNF working in the brain to enhance that connectivity. So um, there's a new nonprofit called uh, Veterans Exploring Treatment Solutions, Vets Inc. Um, that I'm working with. They are um, raising funds to send special forces veterans outside the US to receive Ibogaine therapy for the treatment of both TBI and post-traumatic stress disorder. While they're still enlisted? Uh, veterans. Oh, excuse me. Apologies. So the veterans, yeah, excuse me. Yeah, yeah, veterans. Um, we would love to start working with active duty forces yeah. for that. Um, we have some political hurdles to get through yeah, first. Um, and so um, VETS, uh, this nonprofit is now um, working with Stanford University, my alma mater, I'm super excited about that, uh, to do a brain imaging study of these special forces VETS. So that's Navy SEALs, um, other special operations veterans um, to get brain imaging to see if the benefits that they get for PTSD from ibogaine therapy also have these neurological changes happening as well. So that's a, a place where a psychedelic is being looked at, not as a mental illness treatment, yeah. but as a, a treatment for a physiological neural condition. And are, are the vets totally open to this that are going through through something as, as, as tough and rough as, as, as depression, but PTSD? Uh, these folks, all guys so far, because special forces, um, I just learned that there are no women in, in the special forces right now, um, um, at least in the Navy SEALs. Um, so these guys um, are at the end of their rope. Um, often their families are breaking up. They're suicidal. Um, the idea of going through a 24 to 36 hour intense, hellacious experience just doesn't seem like that big of a sacrifice. Not, not, that, not that big of a what, sorry? not that big of a deal, not that big of a sacrifice oh, because of what they're all, because of what they're already gotcha. going, going through. That's kind gotcha. of a compelling thing. Um, so there's a long wait list for these grants now um, over 80 folks right now. So that, yeah, that's just one thing that I'm excited about beyond the mental illness is the cool. cool. So you mentioned, mentioned grants. What, what's the cost for all these? Uh, because I know healthcare is very expensive when it comes to even well, cannabis. Cannabis is expensive to a lot of people. But, but patients that are using the antidepressants, I work with, you know, I have friends that are going through this right now that um, I have friends that are going through major pain and they're um, having their, you know, some of their medicine uh, is not um, covered by insurance. And I'm certain this isn't covered by insurance either yet, but uh -huh. so what is the cost? Is, is it break down from uh, all different types? I mean, I, I, I Bogaine, and I'm not, is I Bogaine or Ibogaine? Ibogaine. Ibogaine. Um, yeah, yeah. I heard it's about $6,000 a dose. Is that correct? That's probably reasonable. It's going to depend on which treatment center you go to. There's also travel costs yeah. uh, associated because you have to go outside the U.S. to do it. Um, very clearly, not a lot of people can afford that, um, mm. especially out of pocket. Yeah. Uh, so for, yeah, for a course of psychedelic therapy, um, whether it's ketamine therapy or Ibogaine therapy, um, MDMA therapy is only available in research right now. Same with psilocybin therapy. Um, but as far as ketamine, Ibogaine, yeah, you're talking a few thousand dollars to ten, twenty thousand dollars for a wow. whole comprehensive, yeah. multi-week psychotherapeutic uh -huh. um, thing, um, depending on the retreat center, depending on the clinic. Again, um, so that is that's a big challenge for the industry. 
Uh, that's a huge challenge is, is making the treatment accessible to people. And one way to do that is to cut back on the therapy, cut back on the support, which increases your risk and decreases your effectiveness, um, or to develop scholarships mm -hmm. uh, for people who don't otherwise have the means to access yeah. these. And some groups are doing this. Um, and uh, another way to do it, and I think a parallel way to do it, is to just work to get insurance coverage as hard as possible for these treatments and also coverage in public health care plans. Um, just last week, there's a new publication um, by some authors associated with MAPS mm -hmm. um, that did an economic analysis of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. Um, so this is a hypothetical paper, but it was published in a peer-reviewed journal yeah. showing the net cost benefits to giving people MDMA-assisted psychotherapy rather than what other, other, what other treatments they would be getting. So that's long-term quality of life, that's long-term healthcare utilization costs. Um, and this paper shows how much money is going to be saved. So this is, you know, it's like, we can't express this clearly enough in human terms and talking about all the human lives that yeah. are gonna be saved and, 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 and the relationships that are gonna be saved by making these treatments more accessible. So let's talk about money. And if we can show in actual money what is going to be saved by giving people, say, a three-week or a three-month course of psychedelic therapy, which costs may cost five, ten, twenty thousand dollars, versus the rest of their life yeah. going to psychotherapy, taking daily medications, and paying those fees. And even if you're like, oh, well, that's you know, ten, twenty thousand—that's a lot of money. Well, think about the next forty years of prescription drug expenses and therapy expenses. And when you put them up like that, insurers hopefully won't have any sort of problem paying that upfront psychedelic therapy cost. You know, hopefully it'll get that way. And I know, you know, we're talking to insurance companies that are trying to insure cannabis uh, as a plan. Um, back to preventative care, uh, about 10, 11 years ago, my mom, you know, my mom's uh, insurance company called her and said, Hey, Ms. Malanka, we'd like to, you know, you, you're, you're healthy, you, you know, haven't been using your insurance, but we'd like to buy you a lifetime gym membership. Pick one of these five or six companies. Hey, yeah. And I thought, how, how, how brilliant is that? And I guess, you know, and she uses it. She uses it with yeah. a girl. She's 83, knock on wood. She's still, you know, COVID, she hasn't been in the gym, but she still walks. You know, she'll still drive down from the Bay Area down to Southern California to see my brother at 83. And, you know, my brother's like, she, my, she's perfectly fine, you know. And so thinking outside the box would be long term. And I think, you know, to, to help the, the patients, help the families, like you say, and long term cost of, of health care, it almost sounds like a no brainer. So uh, it, yeah. it does, you know, hopefully that's that's the goal. And and we hit that before it's too late, you know, before we lose more people. Um, to depression or suicide, as you, as you were talking about. Um, and I'm certain they all take, have a different on take, you know, it sounds like ketamine ingesting. Is that, is that instantaneous where um, eating something like mushrooms, is it like eating something like a, a, a cannabis brownie where it takes 45 minutes to an hour and a half sometimes? It depends yeah. on what you have in your system and how your, how your system's built up. Is that the same? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. With, um, with that ketamine nasal spray, that's going to be a take-home treatment. Um, there are also a lot of ketamine clinics where you can get ketamine therapy right there. Um, and it's done via, um, uh, it, it, it may be done intramuscularly. It may be done with, with a lozenge. Um, there's a lot of different ways that ketamine oh, is injectable. 
as you're talking about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, they'll do that in a clinic as well. Um, physicians have a lot of different ways that they can administer ketamine. Um, it's actually been administered in, um, off-label for psychotherapy for um, decades. Um, it's just now just been approved. So now insurance companies will um, pay for uh, and, and, and Johnson and Johnson is leading the way with with ketamine. Um, uh, well, they're the first. Yeah, they're the first one to get an approval um, for a patented ketamine delivery system. Hmm. Um, but most of the ketamine clinics are using generic ketamine, which is significantly gotcha. uh, significantly cheaper, like by an order of magnitude. Um, so there's still a lot of um, a lot of motivation, a lot of um, reason for other. Um, pharmaceutical development companies, nonprofit or for-profit to get um, generic ketamine out there uh, quickly. Well, I'm certain the pharmaceutical companies, once they see that it's uh, a moneymaker, they'll, they'll be jumping into this, into this uh, market like they're, like they're starting to do here. In yeah. You know, and I really want to, you know, take this opportunity just to like clarify for all those um, folks who might be listening and, and, and considering uh, seeking out ketamine therapy is just to emphasize that if there's no therapy associated with receiving the ketamine, it's not going to work as well. Um, and so break, break that down so, so for our listeners. So if there's no therapy. Yeah. Yeah. If, if there's no therapy, if there's no preparation support, if there's no um, okay. support for the emotions or the insights that you have that come up during that process before, after, or ideally both, um, you know, I seriously reconsider this 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 practice. Um, there's a huge profit motivation for people to receive just a dose of ketamine, come in a month later when their depression comes back, and keep doing that month after month after month after month forever. That is not the real promise of psychedelic therapy. Um, it may help, and it yeah. may help a lot for a long time. But imagine if you could just go in once a year once every few months, once every six months, just, just know that that preparation, that guidance um, and that integration um, is gonna um, save your pocketbook. It's gonna, it's gonna save your time and um, hopefully get better insights for you. Great for that. So for treatment, you, you, you gave us kind of a timeline, um, but on a dose, if someone took, um, I'll use uh, uh, mushrooms again, since we we're, we're starting on that. How long is, 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 is the, uh, and I hate saying the word trip, but how long is the, is the experience? Sure. Let's, let's go with it. Yeah. Mushrooms. Um, you know, if you, if you eat them, uh, you know, just the raw, um, dried, dried stuff at probably 30 to minutes to an hour for it to come on. And then you're talking a three to six hour experience. Uh-huh. Um, with MDMA, it's three to five hours, um, or four to six hours, um, LSD, it could be eight to 10 or, or more. Do you do back to the LSD thing where I'm, I'm bouncing all because this, this is really, and I know probably our listeners are hanging on the edge of their seat. And, and <laughs> so, um, flashbacks, do you ever get flat? Cause you always, you'd always hear LSD flashbacks. Um, do, is this something that happens with other psychedelics? Um, well, flashbacks as a negative, um, like a, as a negative side effect, haven't. Yeah. I mean, cause I, I, you know, yeah. you know, when I was in college, I, you know, you'd be out with some buddies and they're like, I said, what's going on? And they'd say, I think I'm having, you know, I tried LSD, uh, you know, three weeks ago or a month ago and I'm, and I'm 
you know, feeling that again? It's how long does it stay in the system? Yeah, uh, it, it doesn't stay in the system for long. Okay. Uh, so just the next day. Um, okay. It shouldn't that th there shouldn't be any um, pharmaceutical effects left, but the memories and the impacts can can certainly stay. I think the idea of a flashback is much like. Um, it's been pathologized, uh -huh. um, that there's material that's coming up. Um, there are um, maybe neural connections that have been made um, or memories that have come up as a result of the experience that haven't been fully processed yet. Uh -huh. And so people see these insights as these, these things that come out of nowhere, but maybe it's your mind telling you that there's some other aspect um, that needs to be addressed. Um, yeah, so flashbacks as a pathology, hasn't been seen in the clinical trials. So, so, so the mind, so open the mind, huh? bring it all in. Um, we started out, well, you, you like us at, at the beginning of the, our, our show, we were talking about how Corinne and I met you. Um, actually, we met you at, at uh, uh, Society for Cannabis Clinicians conference. And that's why we said, oh, are you here? I did see you here at this cannabis conference in Colorado, you know, um, and you were sharing that you were with MAPS and the topic was, um, migraines and mushrooms. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Um, yeah, actually the, the use of LS, both LSD and uh, psilocybin mushrooms for the treatment of cluster headaches and migraines is um, one of the areas of interest in this field that's been going on the longest. And yet there's still very little, little research into it. Um, and there's a lot of case reports that have shown, and I, this is probably what we talked about, is a lot of these reports have shown that people with um, these untreatable um, migraines or cluster headaches that haven't responded to any other painkillers or conventional treatments can be stopped immediately, instantaneously yeah. by these what are called serotonergic psychedelics. Um, so LSD and psilocybin, these, these drugs that work very specifically on the serotonin system. We don't know how that might be happening. Um, neuroscientists don't know. Um, there's a great um, organization called clusterbusters.org that tracks the research that is going on. Um, so there's excellent promise, whether it's due to um, reducing inflammation or some other, um, some other process that's happening using those for treatment of headaches. When, when we talked that day, going from TSC down to the shuttle in, in Denver airport, um, maybe I misunderstood you. Was it shutting off a receptor in the brain that is that is uh, bringing that pain for a migraine headache? That that may be. Um, I'm not aware of any neuroimaging research okay. um, that's specific, but it's um, certainly working on the serotonin system. Yeah. yeah. How, how does someone find? Well, first off, for, for, for our listeners too, I have to do a disclaimer to protect Brad as well as myself. This is for informational purposes only. <laughs> so. Um, <laughs> Uh, so this doesn't replace a one-on-one -on -one with a medical professional and then leading into that, how was, how does someone find someone? I mean, is this not in the, in, I was saying yellow pages, phone book, no one, no one knows. I mean, that's, that's our old school, but do they go online and say, you know, type in, uh, psilocybin therapist, you know, that you do like a psychotherapist. I mean, what are they looking for? Well, you got to know what's legal and available at this point. Okay. <laughs> right now, the only legal psychedelic therapy in the U.S. is going to be ketamine-assisted therapy. Gotcha. Um, that's the only one. The others, um, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD, psilocybin-assisted therapy for depression, those are still in clinical trials. So the only way to receive that is to get involved in one of those clinical trials. Legally. 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 That's right. That's right. There are um, other resources. Yep. Uh, so um, one thing to look for is integration 
uh, psychedelic integration providers. Um, and those are therapists who are familiar with psychedelic experiences. They're not going to stigmatize, um, but they're there to talk about psychedelic experiences um, and help work through them. And I, um, and I, sorry, go on. Yeah. Um, and just, uh, you know, there's um, uh, also places outside of the U.S. Um, so ayahuasca retreat centers, Ibogaine retreat centers um, that you can also visit with a lot of due diligence. A lot of and, and guidance. You know, I have had friends that have done ayahuasca. I, I've never tried it. Um, uh, we worked with a lot of groups that have worked down in the, in the Amazon and they said, come on down. You know, and they invited Kryn and I down there. It was actually, uh, I won't say the the fundraising group for the the Amazon, but they said whenever they go down there, they do a guided um, ayahuasca. And, and I was surprised that Kryn was like, you know, I'd probably do it. And she was someone who didn't drink in the smoke, you know, area. I looked at her and said, yeah. you would actually do this? And so she's, I think I would, you know, um, you know, but it has a lot of health benefits. You know, people at when Crin passed, I had a few um, doctors and nurses in the industry who do guided um, uh, treatments. And they asked me, I said, you know, I don't know where my mind is right now. I want to, I want to get my mind, uh, you know, out of this grief and depression of Crin passing. And so maybe I should have tried it then. Um, maybe it would have helped. I, I'm not sure. Do you, what, what would you recommend for, for, you, you know, uh, like a case study like me? Um, you know, someone is, we're all yeah, different. Just, I know that. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. It's just also individual. Um, you know, <laughs> um, I've been talking about psychedelics for years and years and, um, you know, being so excited about the research that's happening. I had so many people say, you know, is this, is this going to be right for me? And, I like to um, like to, to repeat something that um, one of my friends and mentors, Jim Fadiman, has said. Um, old um, old school psychologist um, from Stanford, and, and has done a bunch of microdosing research, actually. Um, and what he says is, if you can think of any reason not to do psychedelics, any at all, don't do them. Don't do them. Don't do them. Yeah. Now, lots of other folks are going to have lots of other opinions on that. Yeah. But that for, for me is a mental test is, is, you know, do you have a resistance here? If you have a resistance to it, explore that first, because if you go into a psychedelic experience, not wanting to, yeah. it's not going to be as effective. And it might be very difficult. Um, so I think just like, be aware of what your intentions are going into it. Um, I think, a lot of people ask that at the beginning of the pandemic, actually. This is, you know, all of this crazy stuff happening in the world is now a great time or a terrible time to be using psychedelics. I think it varies widely um, depending on the person. For some people, it's going to be a great time. Open up that plasticity. Be ready to receive new information and make adjustments to your lifestyle and your relationships. Or that's going to open things up even more. I'm going to become too sensitive and I'm going to get overwhelmed. I just need to focus on what's right in front of me. That might be the right choice for people too. So I think it's consultation with a therapist, a, yeah. a, a friend, somebody who's familiar with psychedelics and the experience before making that decision. If someone's doing this with a guided, guided uh, shaman, because I have friends that have done this with, with shamans and they've done one-on-one, -on -one, but they also done, you know, a uh, group in the, um, what do you call it? The, the, the sweat lodge. Mm -hmm. 
and they've done it with numerous others. And so, you know, with the guidance, so I just think, you know, for our listeners, research them because it is interesting. It definitely, definitely is interesting. Can you talk about misconceptions? I mean, because everyone, you know, has this mind thought of what, even with cannabis and now people are like, Oh, I didn't realize that now. I mean, everyone's talking about, I have hiccups and I use cannabis. You know, I have, I mean, (laughs) everyone talks about it and and it's, it's free flowing. Even my mom goes to church six days a week and to hear their, their, their little luncheons and people are, the topic is cannabis. And one of her girlfriends um, who said, I just found out that she's had headaches for years. And I said, mom, I know she doesn't even drink and she knows she's not into cannabis, but she may want to research um, uh, mushrooms. You know, hope I'm not offending her, but these are, this is what this topic people come to us. And so thank you again for our listeners who, who, who kept on saying, hey, do you know anything about this? Do you know anything about, it? and that's the reason why I reached out to Brad for, for this topic. And so can you talk about some of the misconceptions uh, about um, psychedelic drugs, uh, philocybin, right? Psilocybin. Mm-hmm. And, and, and its uses. And so can you talk about that? Uh, just generally, um, you know, I think the biggest misconception is that they're a cure-all, uh, is, is that one experience is going to be enough um, to, to reduce the PTSD symptoms or the depression system, symptoms or to get somebody off of opioids. Um, and um, yeah, just can't emphasize enough that that's, that's not the case. Um, conventional pharmaceutical psychiatry wants us to believe that there are these cure-alls out there. There's these keys that fit in the locks of our brains and they'll just turn and that error in our brain will be fixed. Um, you know, that's not the model that psychedelic therapy is working on. It's about creating the experience um, and the support that people need to make those changes themselves in a lasting way. So it's, it's, it's not going to be the drug. If anybody comes out and says, I've got the psychedelic that's going to cure you of X, Y, or Z, I'd just be very skeptical. I, I recently heard a speaker uh, um, talking on this, and she's the exact thing. It's, it's not the mushroom that's going to unlock the depression. It's the patient that has the key and able to do that. Um, and so for you, you to, you to bring that up, follow up on that, that, that I appreciate that too. Um, I really appreciate what you, what you're doing. I'd love to get you back on the show, but can you talk about integration communications of what you're doing now? I know you you were with maps for about 10 years, right? 10 plus yeah, years. 10, 10, t- yeah. 10 years. Yeah. Thanks. You, yeah. you know, and, and so you were definitely uh, ahead of the game, I should say, because, a lot of people are just, you know, popping into the, oh, here's a new topic. Let's, let's go into it. And so you, th- this has been something you've been doing for a while. So you left MAPS and uh, uh, you started Integrative Communications. And so can you share what you're doing um, uh, for our listeners and how to find you as well? Yeah, absolutely. First, I just want to say MAPS is just still fantastic. I was just writing to Rick Doblin today and um, so excited for what they're doing. When I first started with them in 2009, I was an, an intern. I was still in grad school. I was an intern doing some editing for them. And if you wanted to work in psychedelics, um, so I actually have a job where you could say I work in psychedelics legally and this is something that's actually working. MAPS was one of the only two maybe maybe the only one organization that was focused on that. And now I feel like after 10 years, I've looked up from this nonprofit, which has grown to be a multinational, um, multi-corporation mm-hmm. um, um, with studies all over the world, that, that this whole field has emerged, this whole industry, this whole 
uh, I mean, hundreds, there's, there were 400 plus psychedelic businesses, including ketamine clinics last time I checked. And that's, that's, that's huge. So with maps, just advancing full steam towards the finish line with MDMA assisted psychotherapy, uh, we just raised $30 million for the capstone ca campaign to complete that. Uh, it just feels like there's so much happening in the field that I want to be able to help these other groups too that don't have the resources to have a whole communications program. And that's, um, that's new companies uh, who are, uh, that is pharmaceutical companies or retreat centers who are just learning about psychedelics and how to communicate about them in, in a responsible um, and transparent and ethical way. Um, and then there's also companies that have been around for a longer time that are trying to expand. Um, uh, California Institute of Integral Studies is one of those that has the leading training program for psychedelic therapists um, based in San Francisco. I get to help them now promote that training program. So I'm excited to be able to help out all of these new folks who are coming into the field wanting to say, you know, how do I position myself? How do I not come across as either a hippie or a radical, but yet how do I still um, share how excited I am about these, whatever, whether it's a new product or a new therapy method um, or a new research program or a new educational service. Um, so I'm just learning about all of these new, these new folks in the field and doing what I can to help them get the word out. Well, I, I think you're definitely at the forefront. And like you said, it's not for everyone, but I do believe it will revolutionize healthcare. Um, you know, this is what we're, we're, we're here for to get this information out. Um, as I mentioned, I don't know if it was on camera or off camera, you know, a lot of times I, I, I route um, patients and families away from cannabis, you know, because uh, it's not a it's not a cure. I'll never say cure, um, you know, but I've seen higher success rates on stuff. I've seen an in integrative uh, uh, oncology, functional medicine, you know, acupuncture, meditation. And because of you, and really <laughs> because of you back in 2011 or 12 or 13, when we, when we did have that walk from the, you know, in the terminal, um, uh, this has been in my toolbox you know, to share with people. Go do some research. You know, I don't know much about it, but do some research. And um, that's why I wanted you on the, on the show. And so I really appreciate you taking time to, to be on. And thank you for our listeners for uh, keep on poking me and say, you know, here are some other topics. So if you have other topics that you want us to cover, um, we're, this is what we're here for. This is why I do this, do this podcast. Um, Brad, do you have any final words, closing words you want to share with our, with our listeners? Uh, you know, just thanks so much for bringing psychedelics into this conversation. I really do think they're the next big promising thing. Um, it's still not too late. We're still at the very beginning of this field. Um, so thanks for covering it now. Um, there's a lot more stuff uh, coming down the runway as far as uh, psychedelics are concerned. So I just, um, I just can't wait to keep sharing that. Cool. Thank you. And how can they get a hold of you? Uh, integrationcommunications.com. Got a contact form right there. Um, that's probably the best way. Uh, Brad at integrationcommunications.com. Please feel free to reach out. We'd love to chat with people about this field. Awesome. Brad Burge. Thank you so much for being with us and uh, everyone for our listeners for, for spending another hour with us as well. Uh, this is John Malanka with the United Patients Group. Be informed and be well, and we'll see you soon. Thanks again. And leave your comments below and topics that you want us to cover. We'll see you soon. Bye-bye. 
Hey everybody, John Malanka with United Patients Group. Be informed and be well. This segment is brought to you by Aspen Green. Aspen Green is just a handful of USDA, that's right, USDA certified organic hemp and CBD brands. And all of its hemp is grown from the perfect topography and climate found in Colorado. It is a family owned business and is deeply committed to the science of providing only the purest hemp and CBD products for the best results and most beneficial experience. Its mission is to bring the therapeutic value of pure, organic hemp and CBD to people who seek supplemental relief through the use of healthy, natural products. Aspen Green is free from toxins and runs up to eight different lab tests from bona fide third-party labs throughout its product line. It holds in high regard three foundational principles that guide every aspect of their business, actions, and interactions with their customers, partners, as well as their community. These are quality, integrity, and transparency. These will always remain at the hearts of their efforts to bring their beneficial products to consumers. Check out why purity matters at aspengreen.com and follow them on social channels at aspengreencbd. Use promo code UPGCBD for 20% off. Again, UPGCBD for 20% off at aspengreen.com.